internet friends, and welcome to Love-Hate Relationship, an opinionated podcast for opinionated people. I'm Andy Bowell. And I'm Alex Ruiz, and as ever, we are here to brighten your day, anger your soul, and tell you how to live your lives and in Alex, that order. Oh. And Alex, I, I've got a question for you. This is This is not quite a love or a hate. This is just half of our audience either is just as deep into pop culture as we are or completely removed from it. So this is just sort of like a, a, a commentary. Have you seen the trailer for the next resident evil game? Do you care? Are you paying attention? Uh, I'm not paying attention. Um, I, it's okay. Resident evil is a, as a video game series was something I passionately loved as a teenager. Um, I played like all of the, like everything I could get on a game. When they re-released the games on GameCube, I had like, I'd played Resident Evil 1 and 2 on PlayStation, like original PlayStation. And I loved them. And then when I got a GameCube, they re-released all of the, all of those games, the Code Veronica, which I could mm-hmm. never get because it was on Sega, um, 3, um, they they came out with Resident Evil Zero, which I loved. Um, and then later, I loved. I, I was so into the into it after watching a friend play it that um, before they released it on GameCube, I actually bought Resident Evil Four for the computer, and I installed it on my laptop oh, because damn. I lo- at, like I straight up a- Andy. I bought a like PlayStation, like a clear. We're just gonna make a PlayStation controller with a USB so that you can plug into a laptop. I bought one of those off of off off of online. I think off of Amazon, maybe or somewhere else. Literally, just so that I could play Resident Evil Four on a laptop. The kids um, got computers rigs. Oh my god! I never knew this. I, literally, that is that and Plants vs Zombies are the <laughs> only two games I ever downloaded on a computer. Brilliant! I I'll, love this. I, I I adored Resident Evil. Um, Resident Evil Five was a bad game. I played that with our yes. good friend Chris. That was the two player game. Um, that was a bad game. And after that, I pretty much fell off of Resident Evil. Um, at that point, I'd fallen off of video games as well. Fair, um, right? But but yeah, I was that was that was me. Okay, uh, with Resident Evil. So I haven't really kept up with it since Resident Evil Five. Okay, to catch you up, and and for anyone who doesn't know, Resident Evil is a zombie video game series, and that's really all you need to know. Yeah, five was a bad game. Six was an abysmally bad game, and then they remade the first um, three Resident Evil games, and all of those I've heard are very good. I haven't played them myself. Resident Evil Seven was phenomenally good and kind of like revamped the genre and the series and was absolutely worth your time um, talking to you specifically Alex Um, and now everyone is excited about the trailer for Resident Evil 8 which is Resident Evil Village but here's the reason people are excited in the trailer you meet what is presumably the big boss uh, big baddie of the game who is this very busty French woman who appears to be a vampire. It's not really clear. Who, like, has these giant knife fingers and stabs you at the end of the trailer. And, and oh, and, and you know, at first people were commenting about how she was um, 
comically well endowed like you do for video game characters and you make them fetishistic Mm -hmm. and people were like okay french vampire mommy give me and then for no real reason um konami put out a press release or maybe it wasn't konami whoever developed the game put out a press release and was like just so you know we the game developers want you to be aware she is nine feet tall she is a giant woman a giant woman and the internet is losing its shit over giant vampire mommy and I have nothing to love about this. I have nothing to hate about this. I, I suppose if I wanted to dig into it, I could really get into hating on the uh, the clear fetishistic aspects of the character. Um, but it's... <laughs> so I'm pretty sure it's not Konami. I'm pretty sure it's Capcom that always does the Resident Evil games. Um, that sounds really stupid. I don't and understand it. I truly don't. I Here's the thing. Okay, Andy, let me ask you something. Um how old were you during that like generation of uh, that that like generation of consoles where it was the n64 the playstation one and the first xbox like how old were you at that point i was like five six seven okay cool so like i remember that era i got a playstation uh i would go over to friends houses to play n64 i had a cousin with a dreamcast um that's kind of the forgotten brother of that era yep um and, you know, I, I had played, you know, the 2D consoles before, your Segas, your Super Nintendos. I had a Super Nintendo. Um, but there was something about that particular generation of video games. That was the first, like, 3D games. Right. Like, you, you had some 3D-ish play. Like, you had Mario Kart and Super Nintendo Star Fox, and those were technically 3D, but the graphics sure as hell weren't. Um, Are you leading towards Laura Croft? Maybe. Uh, <laughs> um, but I, I think about moments like Laura Croft. I think about um, how once you started getting 3D renderings of Mortal Kombat characters, I remember the fucking um oh god what was it dead or alive beach volleyball oh god or yeah. the <laughs> the fighting game that turned into a volleyball swimsuit competition simulator yeah that one's pretty egregious yeah and and there was this moment like video games have always had a certain level of like trying to appeal to what they believe are a population of buyers who are just um stereotypical drooling idiots idiot males um basically what the kids in weird science grew up to be eh. um th- there's always been this idea that that's that's you know that's your big market that's who you got to appeal to um and the problem is that has that has borne out monetarily with the people who are like that and it hasn't sufficiently turned off the people who aren't like that such that they won't buy games. Sure. Or buy or buy consoles. 
Um, keeping in mind, you know, the very small majority, it is a majority, but it's like 51, 52% of video game consumers are women. Um, but it's, I remember that era and I remember looking at Laura Croft, who in the PlayStation 1 generation was, you know, she had giant breasts but they were fucking pixelated to hell. There was nothing like it. It it was creepy, y'all. Like it was, it had all the attraction of the 3D computer animated figures in the Dire Straits "Money for Nothing" video. Like that. And and maybe that's looking back on it with the conceit of like what these characters look like now, you know, like h- how much of the internet was obsessed with Bayonetta when that shit came out? Oh, very much so. Yeah, that I didn't actually put that together, but Bayonetta is probably the uh, best comparable here because Bayonetta is also like comically tall and proportioned, very. Uh, very much with the male demographic in mind. Yeah. And Bayonetta is a character who, if I remember correctly, her powers are she has really long hair that she uses to turn into her clothing, but also into her weapons. And sometimes when she's using her weapons, you see some of her legs, you see some of her belly. She's mostly naked when she's using her hair to make these giant weapons. And it is... It's not subtle in the slightest. What I'm sitting here contending with is you're telling me about this shit happening online. And no lie, I was on Twitter and I saw Resident Evil trending. And I was like, oh, cool, they're probably dropping a new Resident Evil game. Good for them. I'm glad, I'm glad the franchise is still going. I don't play it anymore, but I'm, <laughs> yeah. glad, that, I'm glad it's still going. Uh, that, w- that was a fun, like, overarching story um, for Resident Evil. Um but you're telling me that this is the situation for it. And I'm kind of sitting here going like, we're still doing this, y'all? Like, this is still the thing? It's We haven't learned anything since fucking Samus Aran on the NES? I mean, if anything, yeah, if anything, we're going back to it because there was absolutely nothing in the last game that could be sexualized or, or fetishistic, at least not like at first glance and you bring a weird point. And I, I adore that I brought up this very silly thing and you just dove right into the point of like why systematically it's, it's problematic and upsetting. Um, that is truly, um, our dynamic and I love you for it. (laughs) I mean, more than anything, I just want, I just want these game developers to, you know what? I don't want them to be better at representing realistic human proportions so much as I just want them to be equally bad at the other side of it. Like, if you're going to be cartoonish and shitty, like, horror movies figured this out a long time ago. Horror movies figured out, okay, we're going to be schlock. Yeah. We're going to be garbage. We're going to show the very worst dregs of humanity. So let's just be universal about it. If we're going to be... If we're going to show just, like, horrendously um, misaligned views of women, let's also show the male body in various states of degradation. 
if we're going to be horribly racist, let's also just make sure that the most powerful white characters are also covered in blood and sliced open. Like, horror movies figured this out to a certain extent a while ago. I just want video games to be equal opportunity shitmeisters. I'll keep you posted. I'm not going to hold my <laughs> breath. You are my window into this world, dear Andrew. I I have Tetris. Indeed. That is that is my shit. Well, you know, that's probably safe, and I'm upset that I have to say probably. Welcome to Love-Hate Relationship. Um, every episode, one of us uh, picks a random topic out of our brain, and we discuss it for a few moments. That way you ju- That's what you just listened to. And then we mm. go into the actual planned content, where one of us talks about something we love, the other talks about something we hate, and then we take the internet's relationship questions and give our perfectly unqualified advice for them. That's right. And uh, this time, I've got the love, Andy. You do. Uh, you've got... Yes. And I, I'm a little... F- I'm a little worried because um, I sent you this love up front. I'm worried this is going to be like our nerdiest episode or one of our nerdiest episodes because we get We've into just... We've had some nerdy episodes, but you might be right. Uh, we'll see. Okay. So, I always like to start with a question to you, Andy, to kind of intro my topic. And I want to get stupid with this one. Like, just dumb and weird. So for this topic, Andy, I want to bring this directly. Who would win in a fight? Samurai Jack or Jon Stewart's Green Lantern? Please explain your answer. I'm going to open up by saying I don't think this is dumb, stupid, or weird. Um, This is delightful, and I love this question. (laughs) And I didn't need to think about it a whole hell of a lot. Samurai Jack every time. really why because anybody who's watched the show knows what i'm talking about we've seen samurai jack overcome mythic horrors and cosmic monstrosities and the most like obscenely deadly forces that any any action hero in cartoons has ever faced i i think about the episode a lot where there's like this tower on an island and there are these three archers who can like hear anything and have this insane range and so jack has to learn how to be perfectly silent in order to get to these archers and and slay them and get into the tower and that's just one example jack has trained himself over and over and over again to be the just true master samurai ninja warrior. And I understand he's going up against a green lantern ring. He's going up against the most creatively omnipotent, powerful weapon in all of comics. If you use it right. But I think that, and I say this knowing how you feel about Jon Stewart, I feel Mm -hmm. like Jon Stewart would be the weak link in this fight and Jack would be able to overcome and definitely take him out. Okay. I I think I appreciate the hell out of that. I would probably say, like, I'm gonna give it to Jack personally. I, I agree with you. And I and I give this I, I give this for a very specific reason. To me, there's this is a two out of three matchup. If it's unarmed combat, if it's John doesn't John Stewart doesn't have his Green Lantern ring, Jack doesn't have his sword. Jack wins. Period. Mm. John Stewart is a marine. He's a great fighter. He's he's 
more than capable in hand-to-hand combat, but he is not a fucking samurai. So, unarmed conflict. In armed conflict, but not to the death, I think Jon Stewart wins. Because Jon Stewart is more than capable of, I think, subduing Jack in a non-lethal form. Mm. But if it's to the death, Jack wins. Because Jon Stewart will hesitate, and Jack will find a way to kill him. I was only thinking about it in terms of armed and, if not to the death, to the dismemberment. Remind me, sure. do do lantern rings not work on magic? Because recall, um, it is a magic sword. It is a magic sword. As far as I know, there is no issue with the rings, like, affecting magical things. All right, I'm, I'm mixing up Green Lantern and Superman, then. Yeah, Superman can't handle magic. Like, everyone always talks about how kryptonite is Superman's weakness. No, magic is Superman's weakness. It's... Come on, you guys. There's, there's, that's the only way that Etrigan was ever able to take down Superman. <laughs> God, I love Etrigan. Um, anyway, thank you for that. You're I appreciate it. And thank you for not thinking my question was very, very stupid, um, even though I thought it kind of was. You understand um, there is an entire YouTube like show called Deathmatch where they do like... Death Battle. Yeah. Yes. Who would win? Friend of the show, Goku David, sends Superman. me... Friend of the show, David, sends me death battles on a regular basis whenever he thinks I'll even remotely enjoy them. And I thoroughly enjoy them. Very good. So I'm, I'm here for it. Um, so there's a, there's a reason why I took these two very disparate characters and put them in a match and asked you to decide who would win. Mm. Uh, and that is simply that in animation, both of those characters were voiced by the amazing Phil Lamar. And I want to talk about Phil Lamar today. Hell yeah. So, um, Andy, it's been almost six months since I talked about Cree Summer. <laughs> How the uh, time and, flies. Yes. And before her, uh, I discussed Rob Paulson. Those have been the two other voice actors that I have discussed. Um, and for as much as I adore voice actors, I don't talk about them nearly enough. So I was really interested in trying to bring somebody in. And I, and I thought about different voice actors. I'm not going to lie. There's a little part of me that's like, is this the episode where I talk about Frank Welker? No, I... I I love him, but I don't want to talk about a white man right now. Same thing with Jim Cummings. Same thing yeah. with Mel Blanc. Um, I thought about, you know, maybe maybe Kevin Michael Richardson or Tara Strong, you know, bring in one of them. But then I thought, who's someone that I think a lot of people recognize to a certain degree but don't realize the extent of his work? And for me, I think that is Phil Lamar. Mm-hmm. I think I think he's familiar to a lot of people, but I think they have a lot of trouble placing him. So, for background, Phil Lamar was born in Los Angeles in 1967. He graduated from Yale, uh, where he helped found the still-running long-form improv troupe Purple Crayon. In 19, uh, and he graduated from Yale in 1989. Uh, then he joined the Groundlings and studied improv and comedy under the legendary Del Close. And if you know anything about the history of improv comedy... Um, Del Close is kind of like one of the most important people in that discussion. He is Del Close's material is why you love Key and Peel. Huh, okay. Because Key and Peel has never no one has embodied Del Close's um Del Close's methods better than Key and Peel. So the build upon and then build upon and then build upon? 
that's totally a Del Close thing. Build upon, take take a reasonable concept, twist it slightly, and then build upon it to the point of hilarious absurdity. That is a Del Close like masterstroke. In the mid '90s, uh, Phil Lamar got sort of a got his sort of big break when he was cast as poor Marvin in Quentin Tarantino's Pulp Fiction. <laughs> oh, what the fuck's happening? Oh, oh man. shit, man. Oh, man, I shot Marvin in the face. Why the fuck did you do that? Well, I didn't mean to do it. It was an accident. I'm very much going to ask you to put in a drop there, oh, Andy. Oh, of course. You didn't even have to. <laughs> oh, God. It was a small part, um, and it's it's a sympathetic character. Uh, those of you who haven't seen Pulp Fiction, Martin does not... Martin's fate is not a happy one. That role did not lead to much more film work, uh, but it is still probably to this day the mo- the role that he is most recognized for. He- Phil Lamar gets stopped in the street and recognized for playing Marvin, a character that is in what? Two scenes of Pulp Fiction? Three? Yeah, like technically three, but it's probably less than five minutes of screen time. Yeah, he gets stopped and recognized for that role, which is over, like, 25 years old at this point. He gets stopped for that more than literally anything else in his career. Um, Which is why I say he's recognized, but not necessarily for the best stuff. Mm. Um, He was later that, uh, like, the following year, he was part of the inaugural cast of Mad TV. Um, and if you if you get a chance to look up old Mad TV sketches, a lot of them don't age well, but um, some of the some of the actors in it are absolutely fantastic, and particularly some of Phil Lamar's work. Phil Lamar basically played like all the black people ever. Right, he was um, the anti Jim Carrey. <laughs> yeah, he was. You know, he was. Oh, God. He played Don King. He played Michael Jackson. He played Stevie Wonder and Ray Charles and all of these characters on it, uh, as well as creating his own characters. He ended up writing for about, like, half of the episodes he was on. Um, And then he also had a lot of, like, one-off or short parts. Uh, These are all still on-screen acting. He had a lot of one-off parts or short parts ranging in shows from, like, Mad About You and The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air all the way to more recent stuff like Castle and Lucifer and Veep. He'll do these like one, two, three episode characters on all of these TV shows. And he still does. Mm -hmm. Now, that's all good for background. But the thing that I really wanted to talk about is Lamar's voiceover work. So in no particular order... He's voiced your fighters, Andy, Samurai Jack from the titular show of the same name, mm-hmm. and John Stewart Green Lantern in Bruce Timm's Justice League. We just got done talking about Batman Beyond not that long ago. Uh, he voiced Static Shock in the same universe, Hermes Conrad in Futurama, Hector Concarne in the Evil Concarne cartoon, Gambit and Bolivar Trask in Wolverine and the X-Men, Poop Dog and Nugums slash Snooky in Invader Zim, Ozzy in the Ozzy and Drix cartoon, Jazz in Transformers Animated, and Aquaman, Green Beetle, and Metron in Young Justice. And that was me just glancing at the list and going, okay, which of these are most recognizable just to me? He's another one of these voice actors who's been in everything. 
Right, because just to bring it up real quick, because I, I don't think um, there'll be a lot of room to talk about it. Otherwise, the man is a prolific video game voice actor. Is like, he? Oh, he's done everything. Uh, he was Sig and Jack and Daxter, which is the one that I remember the most. But like, just just scrolling, casually scrolling through his IMDb right now, like... I'm only two years into it. I'm only back into 2019 and I've counted like four video game roles. The dude, the dude works. He works. He works and he works hard. I I always feel like I don't have enough background for the number of video games that a lot of voice actors do, but they'll, they'll talk about it in interviews as being like some of the, some, some of the things that honestly keep their bills paid. Totally. Yeah. Just because of the sheer volume of them. And those are te- typically a lot of sessions, you know? I I remember a an interview with Kevin Conroy talking about doing the Arkham games. And when, he, when Kevin Conroy would record Batman for the Arkham games, he'd like, it's a 300-page script. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I am recording all of these lines. So it is work. Yeah. I don't think people think about it, but it's, it's so much more than even even a show like even a full season of a show i want to take a pause and talk about just some of those some of those roles because um i i can gush over john stewart green lantern uh all day long um sure I, i i was gonna say this later but like everyone has a batman everyone has a doctor um you could kind of argue everyone has a superman uh, everyone has a James Bond. We've talked about that. Yep. Um, real, real DC nerds all have their Green Lantern. This is true. Um, I'm pretty sure for you it was Kyle Rayner. It is, because I'm artistic and difficult. <laughs> jerk off motion, jerk off motion. <laughs> for me, it's Jon Stewart. Um, for me, it is, uh, you know, I grew up on the Bruce Tim Justice League. And and you know what? I even like the first Green Lantern I encountered. I think I've mentioned this before. Was the Hal Jordan of like the Super Friends cartoons? Right. Yeah. And he was cool. I liked him, but like I didn't latch onto him the way like I latched onto John Stewart Green Lantern. And he is he's an angry character. He is a straightforward character. But he's also a character who, when he gets sent back in time into World War II and his ring runs out of power, he just joins up with a bunch of army dudes who at first are like, you're not useful. Your stupid ring thing's not even, not, doesn't even have anything. And one of them shoves him and he beats the shit out of him. <laughs> and it's just like, United States Marine Corps, what are you going to do? <laughs> <laughs> and like that, John Stewart is my Green Lantern and one of my favorite favorite characters and a lot of that comes back to lamar's voicing sure it's so yeah i you know i want to talk about hector concarne i want to talk about hermes conrad but i want to talk about hermes conrad but like if you look at phil lamar he looks like kind of a skinny nerdy dude he doesn't yeah. have a a physical presence to him at a glance. Mm-hmm. 
but that man has the most satisfying, badass, threatening baritone you've ever heard. And that yeah. comes out in John Stewart. That comes out in Sig from the Jack and Daxter games, who's probably the most badass character in that entire franchise. You cherries didn't think some nasty breath, giant-sized lizard was going to keep me from the biggest party in town, did you? That comes out in a lot of his action work, and I think there's a lot to be said there, but also, and this will be the tie-in into Hermes Conrad, there's a lot of versatility, like like any voice actor we've talked about Rob Paulson, Cree summer, any of any of the greats, the man can just kind of do anything. So on the one hand, so on the one hand you have like USMC, John Stewart, badass. And then by the same token, probably, probably in the same day, he just has to drive to a different studio. You get the delicate flower of the Futurama office, Hermes Conrad. <laughs> Uh, who like is upfront about the fact that the only thing he's ever wanted to be in his life is a bureaucrat accountant who's surrounded by like stamps and paperwork and he's happiest there. Yeah. And it's, you know, not to get into the nitty gritty of vocal work, but it's a, a more high pitched, softer, cartoonier voice. It, it, it fits the, you know, the animation of the character very, very well. And he can do that. I didn't realize that Phil Lamar was Hector Concarne. And I'm trying to think, back you know, and, I didn't know either. I'm trying to think back and remember. Cause, cause that was the evil brain, right? Yes. So the whole concept, I, I, I used to really like this show. I never watched it enough, but like evil Concarne was supposed to be about a mad scientist whose body was destroyed but his brain, he kept it alive. And the brain is like, got a face drawn on it. And it's implanted into a cybernetic bear. And the bear is an idiot. Right. And he continues to try and do his evil mad scientist plots. But they all kind of get foiled because things are stupid. And his name is Hector Concarne. And and I don't even want to try and do the voice. If you can find a drop of Hector Concarne to, to just throw in here, and that's, that is the accent that he does for it. Right, and that's my point, is like... Wait! I, I can't do it! But sir, we have the perfect shot! I just can't do it! What? I, to this, like, and to be fair, I haven't watched the show in years and years and years, but like, even as a kid, because I would pay attention to this sort of stuff, I never put it together that Hector Concarne was Jon Stewart, you know? Yeah, and, and Lamar's got one of those voices that usually, if you know his work, usually even if you, like, don't recognize it, like... Even with an accent, you can usually tell. When I found out he was Nugum slash Snooky in that one episode of Invader Zim, like that's one of my favorite Invader Zim episodes. Mm -hmm. And I am so furious I didn't realize that was Phil Lamar because looking back on it, it's so obvious. Like it just has that timbre that's so uniquely him. Sure. If you're if you're at all into actors and especially voice voice actors like we are, I really think that this guy like his IMDb is worth going through because there is just so much stuff that you're like, oh, oh, I didn't know that he was Wheezy in Toy Story three. He was the penguin whose squeaker didn't work right anymore. Like, 
He's been in Princess and the Frog. He's been in Madagascar. He's been in just about every cartoon on Cartoon Network in one capacity or the other. He's been a million people on King of the Hill, which I wouldn't have guessed, but that makes a lot of sense. I don't remember if we necessarily talked about it in this way with Rob Paulson and Cree Summer, but just the, the coolest thing about voice actors is the versatility of the sure. performances they can give. And I, I think that that is the biggest bit of ammo in the argument that voice acting is harder than regular acting. I mean, something that I find really interesting, two roles that point stick out to me for Phil Lamar. You mentioned King of the Hill. Um, he plays uh, Roger Sack in that one. But if I remember correctly, the f- Roger Sack is Buddha Sack. In the first episode with Budasak, he's played, if I remember correctly, by Chris Rock. And then Chris Rock was like, okay, I did that one role. I'm not really going to come back. So when Mike Judge wanted to redo, wanted to have the character come back for one or two other off episodes, Mm -hmm. he brought in Phil Lamar, who has the best Chris Rock impression fucking ever. And if you want further proof of that, in Osmosis Jones, the animated movie right. with Bill Murray and David Hyde Pierce and Chris Rock, when they decided to do an animated cartoon, like a Saturday morning cartoon for it, and Chris Rock wasn't going to come back to do an animated, like, once a week cartoon, they brought in Phil Lamar. Yeah. And I do remember when I like like looking up Rob Paulson stuff. Rob Paulson frequently would do like TV pickups for Jim Carrey. Um, like when you have to do when you're gonna show liar liar on TV, and but you have to bleep out certain things or change some of the dialogue. They'll usually bring in a voice actor to re-record that. Mm-hmm. And Rob Paulson frequently does those for Jim Carrey. Rob Paulson also played. Uh, Stanley in the mask cartoon, the role originated by Jim Carrey. This is interesting thing of voice actors who basically make, if they don't make their living doing it, they certainly make their kids braces by just doing a really good impression of a movie star. And that's such an interesting like thing to train yourself, you know, just, just thinking about it. Like, I don't know if you ever did this as a kid. I certainly did, especially when I when I wanted to be acting, when that was going to be the end all be all career for me. Like just sitting down and like taking a monologue and trying to get the vocal inflection right, um, you know, trying to get Chris Farley right or trying to get Ace Ventura right to call back to Jim Carrey, and sure. the ability to just on a dime kind of develop the vocal tics and mannerisms and cadence of just about anybody. That's always the coolest thing about voice actors. Okay. That was a great take. Uh, now let's do it again. Add 75 cent more, um, Sylvester Stallone only give him a, uh, country accent. And it's like, okay, done. I, yep. And that is the kind of shit that they will get for that. That is the stuff. Um, I've talked about the Jim Cummings hyena story for Lion King, right? Yes. Yeah, like 45 minutes and it's just give me a give me a lusty laugh, give me a scared laugh and Jim Cummings just records 
all of Hat Roll and Lion King in 45 minutes. Yeah. And that's the crap that they'll get. They'll like, okay, do that whole thing again, but um, do this accent, you know? Je- Jess Harnell um, can do every Beatle. Like, it's kind of a party trick of his that he can do the voice of every Beatle. And when he did Wacko Warner, he tried a bunch of different voices and he's like, oh, maybe it'll work if I do Ringo. (laughs) And that is basically Wacko Warner. It's just like a slightly dumber Ringo star. Yeah. So, yeah, I think we could go show the voice acting, um, you know, until the cows come home. But so what about Philmar's actual acting experience? Not, I shouldn't say actual. That's very against the point I'm trying to make. His on-camera experience. You know, he's one of these dudes who does the work, like, on a regular basis. Um, you know, I talked about how Cree Summer side hustles as a musician and had some TV time with uh, A Different World. Uh, how Rob Paulson has, like, he did a brief thing on Big Time Rush. He was in, he was in that um, Brian De Palma movie doing the... The where's the cum shot line. Phil Lamar hasn't done a lot of movies. Marvin is kind of his claim to fame when it comes to movies. But he has done a ton of just like, again, it's it's on screen television work more than it is anything else. Um, And it's always like little little short parts like I I'm looking here. Okay, so yeah, like for movie roles, like he had a he had a tiny part as like the boxing commentator in Real Steel. He was like the second home buyer in Step Brothers. He had an uncredited part as one of the train passengers on Spider-Man 2. Like he does little things like that. But on TV, he did like an episode of Murphy Brown. He did an episode of Fresh Prince, an episode of L- LA Law, one episode of Wings, one episode of Mad About You, one episode of Hanging with Mr. Cooper. Two episodes of NYPD Blue, like one episode of the Bernie Mac show. Like he'll just be in these like tiny roles in just like one one part, one episode there. He did four episodes on Veep. Like I, and I'm just scrolling through. It yeah, speaks... most of these are just one-offs or right. very short runs. But I actually think that goes to his credit because it speaks to the thing where it's like, okay, we we need somebody. We need somebody to be in an episode. It's not a celebrity cameo part, but we need like an episode's worth of work. Yeah, we could go casting and, and we could get some rando. And, and probably that's how we got a lot of these roles. But probably a, not, a, a lot of the other ones was, you know who's fucking great on set? Phil. Phil is funny as hell. I want Phil in this part because I want to hang out with Phil for the day. And yeah, and, I could, you know, I could see that. And that charisma and that likability and, and that speaks to the improv and just the, the, you know, the other part of any actor's job is to be personable and to be an engaging personality that people like and remember. And I mean, just look at the guy's body of work. It sounds like he's got it all. Yeah. Uh, and you know what? That actually leads me really, really well into my last point about him. Um, my favorite thing about Phil Lamar, and I follow him online. I read his interviews whenever he does like random meetups with the Justice League cast and like answers questions or things like that. I follow all of that stuff. 
Um, now, I've talked on the show before about how I love fans. Mm-hmm. People who don't just work in certain properties, but have a passionate love for them. And Phil Lamar is a fan. Like, like he will straight up do Instagram Q&As wearing Green Lantern merch. Oh my god, I love it. Like, he, he embraces... All of that. He is the concept. He he is much like Paulson. He's one of those dudes. He like he'll go and do a convention, and people will walk up to him and be like, "Can you do the Green Lanterns oath?" And he's just like, (laughs) "Damn straight, I'll do the Green Lanterns oath." And it doesn't matter if it's the first time that day or the hundredth time that day. He will recite the creed of the Green Lantern Corps with passion and vigor and make that person's entire day sure and he he loves the fans and he is a fan that's the the reason he was in that spider-man scene it wasn't because he was cast for it it was because he basically reached out and was like i would really like to be a part of this somehow i don't need to be paid i don't need credit i don't need anything i just want to be in this movie somehow. How can I make that happen? And they're basically like, well, we need some extras for this scene where Tobey Maguire saves an entire train of people. Do you want to be one of those people? And he's like, fuck yeah, I want to be one of those people. And you know, like, he's gone frame by frame and probably maybe not has a poster in his wall, but has, like, gone through it and shown people, like, yeah, that's me. I'm in Spider-Man. Yeah, I, I guarantee I'm pretty sure you can you can YouTube that scene. You can Google it even. It's the scene where like Toby Maguire's not wearing the mask right. anymore. He's in front of the train. He's got both he's got the webs out on both sides. You can see Phil Lamar at the front of that train. Like he is slightly to the right above to, above Toby Maguire's left shoulder. And he's just standing there looking scared because he's a good actor. <laughs> right. And I just I I love a fan. I love somebody who just embraces this shit. Somebody who let, let I'm I'm going to say this. He watches the shows. He watches these shows. He reads these comic books. Yeah. He's excited to be there because he loves this shit. Sounds like the dream, man. I mean, for for me personally at least, that it, it sounds like that's the life you'd want to have and that is so cool to me. Yeah. So Phil Lamar, I wanted to put another voice actor um up here on our docket. I maybe I should just start a running tally, but like maybe every every certain number of months I'll just be like, okay, and here's a reason why I love this voice actor. I don't hate and it. here is this one. I so don't yeah. hate it. Straight up. So that's that's Phil Lamar. I wanted to talk about him. He's a lot more than just Marvin, so much more, and I wanted to give him a little bit of a shout out. So Phil Lamar, you know, wonderful man as far as anything I've ever seen of him. Uh, support his work. He's he's constantly doing stuff. If you watch anything that's animated, or apparently if you play a video game, like if you if you play five video games, you're gonna hit two or three that he worked on. So yeah, seems like it, man. No, thank you for bringing me to the table. I love it. Absolutely. You want to talk about fascism? Yeah, let's talk about fascists and Nazis in uh, contemporary anime. <laughs> I got to tell you, just a little bit behind the scenes, like I, I was just kind of sitting here with my hate being like, I was looking at our, our last couple episodes and being like, okay, 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 talked about a writer. Okay, talked about, talked about 
this uh talked about comic books talked about movies talked i have not talked about this and this is a thing that i like have been aware of for a while Mm-hmm. So, I'm going to talk today about Attack on Titan, which is a incredibly popular manga and anime series. And this conversation might delve off into some other things, but but before anything else, Alex, do you know anything about Attack on Titan? Not really. Um, I have seen... Yeah, like you do when you're just, you know, scrolling online. I've seen memes that have apparently referenced things about Attack on Titan. Um, isn't there like a TikTok? Wasn't there like a TikTok trend of people like pulling their mouths to one side and sticking out their tongues yes. and it had something to do with Attack on Titan? Yeah, it looked like you had Titan mouth because it looked super weird and gross. Yeah, like I I am aware of its existence um, I, I've, I've never been, I've never been a big anime person. I've got nothing against it remotely, but other than, you know, some of the shit I saw on Toonami, I never really got into a lot of them. Um, and even then the stuff I got into on Toonami, like I always knew kids who were way more into it than me. So I respect it. I got nothing, no problems with it, but it's not something that I know a tremendous amount about, and that's, especially contemporary stuff. And that's completely fair. There's nothing wrong with that. I, I, I never want to come across as gatekeepy. I just wanted to know if, if there was some chunk of knowledge that I didn't know you knew about this particular thing. Um, and, and I'm not, I, I am very much more into anime. I, you know, I always grew up watching Dragon Ball Z. Um, my dad would take business trips to Japan and Hong Kong a lot and would come back with like, you know, these movies that he thought were super cool. And so it was like stuff like Gundam. And I saw Akira way too young for the first time. Kaneda! <laughs> and it's it's always been a, a thing. So, you know, I I, I come to it with a, a much broader familiarity than you do. And I still enjoy yeah. anime to this day. Honestly, like I when I heard the title Attack on Titan, I was like, there's a manga and an anime called Attack on Titan. I confused it with the Kurt Vonnegut novel, The Sirens of Titan. <laughs> and I was like, there's a I was like, there's a manga of that Vonnegut novel? Like, I didn't even remember the name of the Vonnegut novel properly. I was just like, Titan, Titan, it's a thing. That is the most on-brand miscommunication I think you and I could ever have. Uh, So talk to me about Attack on Titan. Sure, and and just the broadest strokes for anybody who doesn't know, anybody who is coming at this with uh, maybe even less familiarity than you. Attack on Titan started as a Japanese manga, uh, you know, which is essentially a comic book, and then um, was also adapted into an anime, which, you know, is essentially a cartoon. And so it was originally created by Hajime Isayama, and it's set in this, this alternate Earth, this alternate world where humanity lives in fear of these giant cannibal monsters called Titans that like attack people's cities and eat them and are just these, these evil creatures. The show kind of is in this vaguely German unnamed country where the, the whole point of it, the, the reason for humanity is to 
militarize and fight up against these monsters. And and there's a lot I could get into, but that is the broad strokes. Vaguely German, um, like 1800s level technology. Like it's, it's people using muskets and swords and horses and shit to fight these giant cannibal monsters. That's the show in its broadest strokes. Okay. All you, all, all anyone really needs to know is it was popular as all hell when it first came out. The manga came out in 2009. The anime came out in 2013 and just completely nearly revitalized the anime industry and became the hottest newest shit. And I guarantee you, if you haven't seen the show, you've probably heard the theme song, which I'm going to put a drop in. And is this like super epic sweepy like like imagine dragon force with a like uh choir singing these in high-pitched angelic choruses and and that's the song And, and so this thing took the, the world by storm in the first couple seasons, and it's been going on up until this point. The, fi- the fourth and final season of the show actually released last year, and I don't think it's completely done yet. Um, okay. All you need to know is it was entirely popular as all hell, and it's become clear in the few final seasons and arcs of the show due to plot twists that it is also fascist as all hell in its themes and values. Okay. The, the, the main twist and, and people have caught up on this and, and a lot of people have talked about this, but to paraphrase the Titans, the monsters, the evil cannibal, like villains of the show. There's a plot twist where it becomes revealed that they are actually just a different, like race of humans who have this ability to turn into giant people and in the history of the show. So like, you know, the, the meta plot based history, they are a stand in for Jewish people right down to a plot point of yes. And in this year we rounded up all of the Titans into ghettos and we made them wear armbands and the fact that they are all giant man-eating monsters is actually because like regular people basically lobotomized them and forced them to become these giant monsters and then threw them on this continent for them to like be these weapons of war and devastation. The final arc of the show features a giant army of Titans planning to revolt and take over the world and like enact their vengeance And this is presented as the bad, morally complex issue that nonetheless needs to be stopped for the sake of humanity. So to boil it down, this is a show in which the antagonistic creatures are a stand-in for Jewish people. And the final climactic inciting action is to prevent the Jewish people from taking over the world. This is the part where I talk about how uh, creator Hajime Isayama 
has publicly talked about idolizing Japanese military leaders from the 1920s and the 1940s, um, also known as the period of, you know, imperialistic conquest where Japan was sure. invading China and Korea and, you know, leading up into World War II. Um, and expressed totalitarian and anti anti-Semitic sensibilities in interviews and reading between the lines, his art and his writing. A lot of ink has been spilled about this. It's kind of like how I knew about this thing. And, and I'm going to limit myself to only um, putting in the reference for a single article on Polygon. But if you look up attack on Titan fascism, you will find several articles that, that go into this into a, a much uh, more detailed light than am I, I'm doing. But I, I, I wanted to come on here and talk about how it's really troubling that one of, if not the most popular anime in the past 25 years, features heroes who are stand-ins for pre-Nazi Germany and villains that are stand-ins for Jewish people. Whew. Andy. <laughs> what a feast you have brought me. Indeed. <laughs> okay. First thing that this makes me think about, first and foremost, is um how it is the number is the amount of um what is commonly referred to as really um, often really excellent art of various kinds in different mediums mm-hmm. um, that have been looked back upon with a really unkind eye um, because with the language and the theory and the distance of perspective that we have now, um, we recognize things like how it would promote a jingoism, racism, uh, extreme far-right ideals, fascism. I think very specifically of the poetry of Ezra Pound, who was a contemporary of T.S. Eliot, and how it was, looking back on it, kind of, in a lot of ways, really supportive of ideas of Italian fascism. And I think about the work of Frank <laughs> yeah. Miller, who, for those of you who don't know, is a an artist and writer in the comic book milieu, an American writer, who is responsible for some really important, really incredible, you know, groundbreaking work in the realm of comic book writing. He has maybe the best run of Daredevil ever. He has he wrote the definitive Batman year one story. He wrote The Dark Knight Returns, which a lot of people credit to being the revitalization of that character. And then he wrote two sequels to The Dark Knight Returns, which are basically all about why Muslims are terrible and why, like far-right extremism is totally the way to go. Um, sure. So fuck Frank Miller. But but the thing is, there were elements of that looking backwards. Like, you can look at some of his, what we would consider less problematic work, and see the, some of the echoes of where that eventually went. That's always been done with the benefit of hindsight. That's always been done with us looking back and kind of seeing 
tendrils that weren't immediately apparent to us. Yes. This is happening in real time. Uh, is is the manga done? I believe like, is the manga so. Um, it might actually be the case right now where they're trying to end the two things at the same time. Um, because, you know, this, this has been going on for mm. over 10 years now, but it's also a very long story. Like, I, I feel like the the last plot point was like volume number 85 i read in my research or something um so i don't believe let me let me mm-hmm. not talk out of my ass here the 30 okay so the final volume of attack on titan will be released on june 9th of this year so wait so the the show is going to wrap no, up they're trying to the they're, they're, they're trying or? to get them done at the same time or before the basically. book does gotcha okay 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 that makes sense um, so it is, maybe this is because it is of its moment. It is very, this is unusual for me, Andy. I actually have a little bit of a, a hopeful okay. view on this. So there's, when, when I think of stuff like that media that I just, like, I talked about a poet and a writer slash artist. Um, who have expressed really problematic views. Um, I, I We only mm. see that through the benefit of hindsight. Pound isn't horrible until after you've seen what Italian fascism truly is. Um, Miller is not... doesn't seem quite so terrible to a Gen X eye or even a late boomer eye. But to a, to millennials who grew up in the under the shadow of 9/11 and the George W. Bush administration, mm. he's fucking horrifying. Um, that benefit of distance does a lot. The fact that this is happening in and of its own moment, um, and and being called out for what it is at the moment, gives me some hope for audience. Um, I am constantly railing on this show about how terrible it is when consumers of media don't critically think about the media they're consuming. And this sounds like there are people who are doing that. Yeah. And that makes me so hopeful. I'm I'm very glad. Yeah. You know, you said this is the first. I'm I'm very glad that there's something that I present kind of in a, a, a dire strait. Um, and, and you find some hope from it. I actually really love that. Rebellions are built on hope. I I mean, granted, um, this has been a very successful show. Has it continued to be a successful show and book? Uh, you know, there was a slight hit um, as people started to realize, and and you know, a a subsect of the fan base, myself included, um, went, "Wait, what the fuck?" Um, and and looked into the. Mm-hmm the not even very thinly veiled pro Japanese pro uh, German um, anti anti Semitic, I guess is really the only word for it um, uh, leanings of the show. But if you like, if you look up attack on Titan, Mm -hmm. or even if you look up Hajime Isayama on Twitter right now, it's full of people like, very clearly invested in the show and praising the work and like 
not talking about like, hey, isn't it uh, really messed up that this guy basically made Jews monsters? Like, are we going to talk about that? No, no. We're just going to talk about how like we like the the property. Okay. It's interesting because I'm I'm skimming the wiki uh, on this as as we're talking and it makes very little kind of passing mention to some of this. It doesn't say anything about the creator making totalitarian or anti-Semitic sentiments and seems to spend a lot of time talking about how um, talking about how much of it is concerned with things like um, the difficulties of like communication across cultures, um, how it, it, there's a sympathy there's a sympathy to the Titan characters that is supposed to be presented there as you kind of learn more about them uh, and everything surrounding them. So that said, this is Wikipedia. It's publicly edited. And if there are people who are fans of this and want to present some of the more kind interpretations of the work, Wikipedia is a place where right. you might and, see and that. So, so to kind of just move along, like it's not impossible that by the end of this, there's going to be something that is like, Oh, the Titans were the good guys all along because for, for a second, like that's what everybody thought this was going was, Oh, the figures you thought were evil were actually the heroes. Um, but then Classic. as the plot, huh? That's classic. That's a right. classic misdirection. You know, right. But it, as it kept going along, it's kind of like, um, well, the maybe they're the heroes, but they're also going to literally destroy the world. Um, there's there's a a meta problematicness to this in that even just looking at what's presented, you have these monsters. And, and I didn't mention this, but like the the visual thing for the Titans is that lots of them are very creepy to look at. They're very deformed. They look very weird. They have exaggerated features. Several of them have giant noses. And that's certainly a lot, uh, that, that certainly hits differently after you hear that, like they are a pseudo Jewish, uh, stand in. Hmm. Um, I'm going to like this polygon article, but just to say it really quick, the, the thing that everybody is pointing to directly, um, there is a, a character in the show who's like a famous general and Isayama has admitted that he based this character off real life Japanese general Akiyama Yoshifuru, who was a, a general in the Japanese Imperial Army from 1916 to 1923. And the man is considered like a, a patent figure, a hero in Japan. And he's also considered a war criminal in China and Korea because he was responsible for like... Uh, countless specific invasion atrocities against those different characters. Mm. Um, there's also a thing where, uh, let me just go through it here. Isayama has denied that the Nanjing massacre, which was a like Japanese attack on Korea. He said, that's not really a thing that didn't really happen like that. Um, and he's also like, just to dive into Japanese politics for a second, um, whoever the leader of, of Japan is right now, I, I don't have his name in front of me. He's sort of a right wing conservative leaning 
comparable for mm-hmm. Japanese politics. And um, recently, like Japan has not been allowed to have an army since World War II. That was a thing. Yeah. And he recently set up something called the Japanese Defense Force and found a loophole, which is like, no, it's not an army. We only send these military units out to our allies in, um, you know, times of their need. So it's not really an army, you guys. Promise. It's not an army. It's a defense force. And Isayama has been like, sweet. That's great. I love this. So that that's the kind of stuff we're talking about. And, and I welcome people to dive in deeper if they're interested. I questioned on making this a hate on attack on Titan or a hate on fascism in anime in general, mm. because like I said, it's, it's possible that by the end of attack on Titan, there's some other twist where everything is kind of okay. Or at the very least, not directly anti-Semitic, just anti-Semitic in um, presentation, Mm-hmm. <laughs> which if there's a, a better or worse there, you go ahead and find that for me. Mm-hmm. But here's the thing, like off the top of my head, I can think of several other examples in anime specifically of something like this, where maybe it's not outright supporting fascism, but it's at least using visual themes as an easy metaphor and then allowing a fan base to idolize something based off of either totalitarian Japan or Germany. Um, the things that come directly to mind is Full Metal Alchemist, which is another anime, and it's one that I really enjoy. That also takes place in a, it's not really Germany, but visually it's Germany kind of place. Um, and there is a, in in that show, there is a distinct ethnic minority that is put into ghettos and like uh, sent off and, and there's this whole war and there's, there's a whole bunch of stuff um, looking at something called Helsing, which is a vampire anime. Helsing has bad guys who are straight up Nazis. Like it's Nazi vampires are the bad guys in Helsing, but then, eh, you know, like you do. <laughs> um, but then like you go to a comic con and you see people cosplaying the Nazi vampires and mm. like enjoying themselves and no matter what the artist and the creator of Helsing's intent was, then you have people being like, oh, I'm going to be this Nazi vampire because I think this is a fun costume. And sure. it just sort of seeps in this like this mental black mold and rod of like, OK, now I have a positive association with this character who is an on paper Nazi. Um and this one's kind of silly, but the most egregious one, this is a show my sister used to watch a lot. There's an anime called Hitalia Axis Powers, and it's a comedy show. And the whole gimmick is it anthropomorphizes the nations that fought in World War II. So Japan, Italy, Nazi Germany, the United States, England, like it, it makes those countries people. And then they like have silly conversations and get into all sorts of mischief and stuff. But so you have the show where like Nazi Germany is personified into this cutesy joke character. And then people watch that and it's like, oh, it was so funny when Nazi Germany like stole Italy's spaghetti. There is this undercurrent and, and there's this undercurrent 
that I have never very closely examined. And I, I think having this conversation is what's going to like lead into my own personal, like trying to figure this out. I'm not familiar enough with German contemporary um, pop media to know if this goes the other way. Uh, but, uh, I, but I see lots of examples of Japanese pop culture media, like doing this thing where it's like, Oh yeah, that's uh that's pre-Nazi Germany. And also they're the good guys or just, just what we've been talking about this whole, this whole time. Sure. And I really don't know what to make of it. I can give you this perspective. Um, Post-World War II, uh, and in the subsequent generations, um, quite quite to the contrary of uh, that one, one of the best Simpsons jokes ever written, which is, you know, Germany talking about how everyone was on vacation from 1935 to 1945. Um, Ooh, the Germans are mad at me. I'm so scared. Ooh, the Germans. Uh-oh, the Germans Stop are it. coming to get Stop me. Stop teasing us. Oh, don't let the Germans come after Please me. Please stop the pretending oh, you're scared. Yes. Stop it. Germany's attitude towards that period of time is very sober and very serious. Right. Um, in, in the... As fascism has risen as a real and visible presence in the U.S., a lot of attention was turned to how Germany approaches the subject now and immediately post-World War II. And their basic attitude about it is this is the great shame of our nation. Mm -hmm. And we will teach our children in our schools about what we did without sugarcoating it. We will not make excuses for it. We will make a vicious point to work against everything that we did there. We will pass straight-up censorship laws and deeply monitor far-right, extreme nationalistic presences here in this country. To wit... It's not that there is not a far-right or fascistic political structure inside of Germany right now. However, that political structure is far weaker than the same apparatuses in France and England. Fucking in France. France is more, has more of a fascistic presence than Germany does. Um, so German media, German pop culture, very much like they don't fuck with this. Sure. Yeah, they don't. Um, now in Japan, post World War II, there's, there's, there's a thing that doesn't get talked about enough in the U S which is the presence of Japanese nationalism. Now, um, post World War II, Japan wasn't pointing at the atrocities that Nazi Germany or even fascist Italy committed. Because for Japan, their version of nationalistic fascism was less um, less tied, not entirely untied, but less tied to being generally horrible to its own citizenry. They were really horrible to the Chinese and the Koreans. Right. Um. But that presence of Japanese nationalism 
stopped being so rah-rah, but it never fully went away. Um, the fact that, Jap- that Japan is so damn good at capitalism doesn't help because there there is definitely an attitude in Japanese culture that by succeeding on world economics, they are in certain ways glorifying Japanese culture. Um, so what you basically have is an ax- a former Axis power that has not really cottoned with its own sense of nationalism. And that is in the culture. So you telling me that that nationalism, nationalism, fascism is nationalism taken to an extreme. Mm-hmm. And nationalism itself isn't a good thing because nationalism is already a type of like diet fanaticism. So you telling me that there is a through line of Japanese media with a, at the very least, nationalistic, if not fascistic bent, makes sense to me. And you telling me that there is a cutesy anime that kind of makes some light of some really legitimately horrifying shit on the world stage, that doesn't overwhelmingly surprise me either. Keep in mind, like, Japan has one of the most homogenous cultures in the world. I think it's something like... 90 I think it's more than 97% of people who live in Japan are of Japanese descent. And if you think that sounds obvious, that's really not the case for most of the developed right. world. It's the equivalent of say it, it's the equivalent of like that's roughly the percentage of white people in Vermont. <laughs> and if you don't think it's a problem that there aren't more people who aren't white in Vermont, you're not paying close enough attention. But that's it on a national scale with a global powerhouse, economically speaking. Sure. And it's a really homogenous culture. And that means you, even if you want to have other, other people in the room, Telling you, hey, Mr. Popo in Dragon Ball Z is blackface and you probably shouldn't do so- do that. There's Where are the black people in that room with that perspective? If you sit here and go, hey, if we, if we personify Nazi Germany as a cutesy, you know, fun little anime character, um, how is that going to make people who have this in their cultural history feel? Eh, whatever. There's nobody in the room to call you on exactly. it. Exactly. And and especially, I think that was one that maybe they figured, ah, no one outside of Japan will watch this probably. And then it got like redubbed in English and became like its own thing that like a certain subsect of uh, Comic-Con anime nerds would fawn over and love. Thank you for that perspective, dear boy. And and yeah, this isn't one I'm going to fix, but I think you, you <laughs> talked about it very lovely. I want to get into our question. The final point, I just want to cover my base here. I I I, I hear everything you're saying about um, this being a a prevalent thing in Japanese media and not necessarily German media. I do want to point out that like you could make an argument about the glorification of British fascism in film uh, being the same mm-hmm. way, because I, I know like, like Tim Roth played a, a 
Nazi British punk. Uh, I think one of Russell Crowe's first roles in rock and Rolla was to be a Nazi British punk. Like, like th- this happens in other countries and other forms of media. I don't, I'm not trying to say that this is only a thing in Japanese anime. Um, but that is what I wanted to talk about today and highlight this and highlight attack on Titan in particular as just something that is like very bothering. So listen, you don't need to be of a culture to criticize nationalism or fascism and especially when it's in media. So I appreciate it, my friend. Well, thank you. With that said, let's go ahead and get into our question, which I actually, I very much enjoy. Uh, it's a shorter one. Uh, you want to read it or should um, I? I'll go ahead. So you, I will point out though, you found this on relationships.txt. And the question is, should I break up with my boyfriend because he believes nine 11 is an inside job? My boyfriend of two mm-hmm. years, a 29 year old man, uh, came out during lockdown that he is a full supporter of nine 11 conspiracies. He admitted the only ones he believes in are Epstein, 9-11 was an inside job, and Hillary Clinton maybe being associated with Epstein in his ring. And generally, he is skeptical of the government. Finally, after an argument, I started yelling at him and told him that I can't trust his intelligence anymore because he believes these. Our relationship is basically over in my mind now, but I can't figure out if I'm overreacting or not. I need some consensus, hopefully. I could be making a huge mistake and leaving a potential best husband to me in my future, or I could ruin my life staying with a man who believes conspiracies. Should I break up with my conspiracy believing boyfriend? So first we need a name. I have a thought. I've got one right off the bat, but what's yours? Okay, hit me. No, hit me. Hit me. Hit me with yours. Nancy Gribble. That was mine. Nancy and Dale. (laughs) I had a funny feeling. Oh, God. Okay, so King of the Hill, Nancy Hicks Gribble, uh, and her Nancy's actual partner is Dale, who is her husband, but in this case, it's a boyfriend, who will be Dale Gribble. Indeed, because Dale Gribble 100% would have, like, believed all this shit. Hey, baby! How about a couple of beers? Sorry, should gotta go. I got another migraine treatment with John Redcorn. Nancy, you've been going to that healer for 12 years and you still get headaches every night. Uh, Dale Gribble might be my favorite part of all of King of the Hill. I need to talk about King of the Hill on the show That's at fair. some point. Yeah, I'll be uh, down for that conversation. Okay, but um, in the meantime, let's focus on Nancy and Dale. Um, do you, should I start or should you? I read. You go ahead and start. Okay. Um, so for perspective, uh, Nancy... Conspiracy theories are a dangerous thing. So is being on the complete opposite end of that spectrum. I'm going to say that up front. Sure. Um, Because there's... Depending on who you talk to, I myself will give credence to certain quote-unquote conspiracy theories. I don't believe that 9-11 was an inside job. I don't. Was Hillary Clinton associated with the Jeffrey Epstein situation? Do I believe that? I don't think I do. I certainly don't believe she had anything to do with Seth Rich. Um, would it surprise me? Not terribly. Suspicious of the skeptical of the government? Absolutely. The FBI totally killed Martin Luther King. And if you don't, if you don't understand why I say that, look up the civil court suit against the FBI in 
settled by or brought forth by the King family for which they were awarded $100 just to state up front. This is not about money. We just want to prove the point. Hmm. I'm thinking a lot about um, the Boondocks episode where where Huey is like every famous black person who is arrested is not Nelson Mandela. (laughs) We know the government conspires to put innocent black men behind bars. But but R. Kelly is not one of them. Um, I'm getting off topic. There are certain things you should be that being skeptical of the government for. It's perfectly reasonable. And then there's things that are, frankly, and this is what concerns me, gateways to really dangerous thought. Right. So while I'm, while, you know, your boyfriend can read the Panama Papers... While he can read up on the MLK assassination or the Malcolm X assassination or, you know, conspiracies to kill people like Bob Marley or overthrow governments in Latin America. Things like steel girders not melting because of jet fuel, the loose change bullshit are (sighs) the problem is you can start with those. And then if you're unchecked on this stuff or you sit yourself in the wrong echo chamber, suddenly you think the earth is flat and that QAnon is a thing. So when you're asking about deciding whether or not you are overreacting, I think that's a hard thing to gauge. Um, A lot of it does depend on where you are. I think that politics and beliefs can be a perfectly valid reason to break up with a person especially if you don't think they have a handle on themselves. So what I would probably do is ask yourself, is your boyfriend, well, which of these conspiracy theories do you think is a problem? Where are they coming from? What is their extent? And I think the answers to most of those will suggest that breaking up with him is probably a good idea. Um, Spitballing there. But the decision basically comes down to what is it that these conspiracy theories and these beliefs in them represent for you? What are you afraid of from them? And make your decision based on that. To me, the decision is pretty obvious. You should probably break up with him. But... I think you should ask yourself the why. Andy? Sure. Yeah, I'm thinking kind of along similar lines here. Like, the problem of the question specifically is it doesn't really say anything in the guy's favor outside of we've been dating for two years. And two years is not five years is not 10 years. Like you can end a relationship after two years. And I think bounce off your feet pretty well. Should you break up with your conspiracy believing boyfriend? How problematic is it that your boyfriend believes these conspiracy theories? I think it's okay up until a point. And I say that not to corroborate any of the conspiracy theories. Um, I will say somebody, very close to me um, has sat me down and showed me one of the, here's all the reasons we know nine 11 was a hoax documentaries um, and didn't didn't present it as a joke. 
when it was somebody that I was kind of surprised um, that they weren't presenting it as a joke. I've also had family members tell me that coronavirus is a hoax. And I've had I've had people talk ad nauseum about Jeffrey Epstein. Um, I think you're right. I think it's you shouldn't just carte blanche the government as being good and noble and hell even competent in most ways. But the big ones, the like it. Okay, you know what? If your boyfriend is just gonna go like. Yes, the Clintons were part of the Epstein ring and there is the shadow government 1% and they control our future and then just kind of goes about his day. It's certainly not fun to deal with, especially if he's going to want to talk about it. But maybe if this guy is a great provider and really good to you and everything else is perfect, then maybe that one's possible. If this guy is going to sit here and be like, no, we need to make a compound and we need to make sure we have access to our own guns. And, and oh, I've been talking to these people online and they've shared with me a manifesto. Yeah, you want to get the fuck out of there. The, the slippery slope into QAnon is, I think, the biggest worry here and the biggest like, this is not worth your time to even risk it kind of factor mm-hmm. because you just it, it, there's there's not nobody has the time to actually deal with that kind of bullshit especially if you don't believe in it you know you started yelling at him and said you can't trust his intelligence anymore because he believes these things it sounds like you've made up your mind here and if you're looking for consensus, I will, I will totally support you. The, the most, the most I want to give Dale is like, maybe he is a Dale who is harmless and untrustworthy and wants to blame things in his life on a, in a way that is not in his control and blaming that on the shadow government and the 1% allows him to do all that. And then he goes to his job at the, I don't know, wherever the factory and he, grumbles about it. Dale Gribble owned his own exterminator business well, right, called no, Dale's no. dead bug. Thank you. Right. I know that I meant, I meant uh, Dale in the question, Dale. I don't know. I'm trying to give the guy the benefit of doubt, but there's there's a there's a line in which this is okay and then it becomes not okay and that line is closer to the beginning than than farther along um without any textual evidence as to why Dale is a great guy and just like oh I'm Hemin and Han I dated this guy for 2 years yeah I think you're probably better off so yeah that's where I'm I at, mean Nancy. I yeah, I mean, you say that he could be a potential best husband to you in your future. You don't tell us why. Um, I'm assuming if you were with him for two years and didn't know about this, it's not something he's forefronting. Right. But, like, it was only, like, okay, I have been with my partner for 11 and a half years. 
And I only told her the MLK was killed by the FBI thing, like, last year. And she looked at me like, do you believe that the FBI killed Martin Luther King? And I had to be like, yes. Would you like my receipts? (laughs) Here they are. And at the end of reading my receipts, she was like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Yeah. This one's actually like, this one might have merit. But but that's the thing. It's like, do I believe Martin Luther King was killed by the FBI? Yes, 100%, unequivocally, absolutely. Am I going to try and blow up the FBI building? No. Am I going to do anything that's going to change my life materially in any way? No. I'm going to, if I, if I see, you know, if I see anything, if, if I'm see a political candidate running for office and part of their platform is defunding law enforcement agencies like the FBI or abolishing the FBI, that's going to make me more likely to vote for that individual. But that's about the extent that I'm of anything I'm going to do with that understanding, with that quote unquote conspiracy theory. And that's basically where it is. I feel like Nancy needs to have a conversation with with Dale and figure out at what level does the belief go down? Is this a thing where it's like, yeah, I believe in it, but what are you going to do about it? Or is it also, a... Who, huh? And who is he talking to? That's the other thing. Right. Like, I'm not sitting here in Reddit forums talking to people about the FBI. Like... I, I, I believe what I believe. I've read what I've read. And it's it's that I'm not sitting here listening to ever increasing echo chambers of people talking about Hillary Clinton and Jeffrey Epstein and 9-11. And that's my question is, is he on Reddit? Is he talking to people about this? Is he continuously engaging with these conspiracy theory beliefs? Because if right. he is, that's a danger. That is a legitimate danger. And again, that is that is a gateway to everything we're dealing with here. So make the judgment, Nancy. Absolutely. Listeners, make the judgment for yourself as well, because people are out there and you know, maybe you don't know what they believe, or maybe you have some conspiracy theories yourself and just... Be careful, people, is all I'm going to say. <laughs> Be careful and send us your relationship questions, whether they are about uh, conspiracy theories or not. You can send those questions into love hate relationship podcast at gmail.com, where we promise we'll read them. That's right. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or even TuneIn Radio. Hey, Mom. Um, you can also follow us on Twitter at LHRPod, that's L-H-R-P-O-D, uh, where you can check out new episodes or tweet us questions or just keep up with random stuff we're posting about. Uh, we always tend to we always tend to tweet about things we've already talked about on the show, which is super fun. Um, yeah, so if you got opinions, you got questions. Oh, if you've got your own uh, TXT questions, too. Please forward them over to us. Absolutely. We're definitely interested. 
That's right. Yeah, you can follow me, Andy Bowell, at JovoCop2113 on Twitter. Or you can also find my other podcast, Cult Fiction, where I watch cult movies with the incomparable Stephanie Johnson and talk about them and uh, point out fascism where we see it. Um, uh, All the same places, Alex said, you can find this lovely show. That's right. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram and TikTok at A underscore X underscore R-U-I-Z. Thanks for listening, y'all. As ever, please tell your enemies. (laughs) 